Welcome to the Wine It Up a Notch podcast, a podcast where we discuss wine, life, and everything in between. My name is Anshu, and I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled that you've decided to join me today. Thank you for doing so. Welcome to episode 13 of the podcast. Hard to believe, but I am here at episode 13. I honestly, I cannot believe it. If you go back to earlier episodes, I made a very bold statement and promise to myself that I would try to record this podcast every day for a year, I think is what I committed to or tried to commit to in a bid to get used to podcasting and, you know, just get really sort of ingrained with patterns around recording myself and getting comfortable with that. And, you know, I did okay for a little while. I have to confess, though, in the last little while, I've really slowed down. Uh, I've not been coming to sit down and podcast as much as I would like. I have been busy, however, with other channels of content creation and just creation in general, but podcasting specifically, I have not done. So I have to confess that because if you are listening to podcast episode 13, after you've listened to earlier podcast episodes, you'll surely sort of pick up on the fact that uh, there seems to be a breakdown in flow here, and I'm certainly not doing this every day anymore. And looking forward, I'm not sure that that was the best commitment for myself to make if I was going to break it so quickly, because I doubt that I will record a podcast episode every day, as I've learned a little bit more about what it takes to, um, you know, produce and prepare for a podcast and just, you know, even have really good content ideas I'm starting to think once a week is perhaps more reasonable, but we'll see. I'm still very early in the journey and we'll continue on this journey and figure out, uh, you know, for myself what really works. But that notwithstanding, I'm really excited to be back. I do think 13 episodes is to be celebrated. So I'm celebrating myself. I think everybody should celebrate themselves if they set a goal and are making headway towards it. And, you know, maybe look back and reassess whether some goals or the beginning of a goal wasn't that realistic, which clearly for me daily recording uh, doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So maybe that wasn't realistic, but I'm still here and I'm ready to have uh, a really great conversation today. So today I thought I would talk a little bit about getting kids ready and out the door for school and school or activities. Why don't we just bundle those things up together? I don't know why, you know, my children are definitely older. They're eight and 11 years old, but even still it is absolutely mind-bogglingly impossible to get out of the door on time in the mornings with two children and a dog. And I keep telling myself, you know, let me do one more thing to try to make this smoother. If I take their clothes out the night before, if I pour their water bottles the night before, if I get up slightly earlier, you know, if I just tell them to get up off the table and their breakfast a little earlier, we won't be as frantic. And yet I just find that I cannot seem to make that work. And regardless, you know, even if we are trying to aim to get to the ultimate destination, in this case being school, five minutes before the school bell, as opposed to right when the school bell's ringing, the the act of getting out of the door is still so frantic. As I mentioned, we have a dog who accompanies me for school drop-offs and pickups. And so he's in the mix. He's a pretty good guy, but he's still there, you know, four-legged in the in the mix and in the way. My daughter has disabilities, which requires us to give her a little bit more time and attention and assistance. So, you know, those are complicating factors for sure. But I think the the thing that this all boils down to is that uh, being organized as a family is is an art. And I wonder if anybody's really got it nailed. You know, whenever I talk to my friends, they all will sort of share a similar story. 
Some may have a better handle on things like, say, a Saturday morning when there's activities going on. And some may even have a stronger handle than I do on, you know, that morning period of of drop off or just getting out the door. But I think the general sentiment is that it's always chaotic. I can't tell you the number of times we'll get in the car and one of the children will say, oh, I forgot, you know, fill in the blank. And so then you're running back into the house to get what they forgot only to get back to the car and the other one has forgotten something or I realize I've forgotten something. Um, so, you know, I'm at the point where I have to laugh. I guess this is just a part of life and I will doggedly continue to try to get a little bit more organized and make things run a little bit smoother. But, you know, one of the things that I, I'm adopting in this year is to not be as upset about these things, rather take them as they come and sort of laugh about them because that is just the nature of life and you can't really change it. And it is actually part of the joy of the moment, you know, getting, having the opportunity and getting the chance to actually be with my children, to be the one who helps them to get ready and get to school to ensure their safety and their happiness during that time is a true privilege. And it's one of the things I'm sure I'll remember for the rest of my life as a beautiful period in my life. So if I'm going to think of it that way later, why not look at the beauty in the moment now and just enjoy it? And that's what I'm trying to embrace. I'm not going to say that, you know, there are not moments where I am frustrated and, or the children are frustrated and we're less than perfect with one another. But generally speaking, you know, we, we try to have a bit of fun with it and just relax a little. And listen, if we're a little late for school, then we're a little late for school. That's how life rolls, though I am definitely trying for that not to be the case. But I have to say, I do, you know, I, I, there's sort of two thoughts that come to mind here. One, if there's anybody out there that's got great tips for how to make the morning exit, whether it be for school or activities to go smoothly and everybody to be on time, I'd love to hear tips. So definitely send me a message and let me know. Uh, but the other thing is for anybody who's listening, who is new to parenthood and, you know, just getting into this, this phase of life where you don't control everything and everything is not neatly packaged and organized. You know, I think it's important to just share that that is, is normal and we all go through it. And it is, as I said, part of the catastrophe and also the beauty of this chapter of our lives. And I just hope that maybe helps somebody to feel okay about what is going on in their life to know that, you know, whether it looks perfect or not, I'm not suggesting that, you know, my approach or my life looks perfect, even from the outside looking in. But, you know, there's surely some instances of seeing people where it looks like they have everything under control. And that can sometimes make us judge ourselves very harshly. So for that reason, hopefully my sharing how chaotic my mornings are and how confounding it is to try to make it any better will help somebody else feel either comfortable with their own situation or feel sort of less out of control if you are having moments similar to the one that I described. Okay, well, with that, let's talk about wine. So today I really wanted to talk about uh, port wine. I attended a really cool tasting uh, about a week ago where I got to try eight different ports, all with some really good age on them side by side. And it was really fascinating for me. Port wine is something that I obviously understand on a theor- theoretical level. Uh, I've also, you know, traveled to Portugal where port wine comes from. And so I've had the opportunity to uh, drink it there. I've, I've certainly studied it. But I, I would say that it's not a style of wine that I spend a lot of time with uh, or have necessarily tried to spend a lot of time with. So the opportunity to do this tasting really gave me some good insight into 
why people enjoy port wine so much. And I thought it was a good topic to unpack and just share a little bit about, because I think it's, you know, similarly for me, it's, um, it's a topic that not that many people know about. So I'm going to do a little quick and dirty. There's a lot to get into when it comes to port, but let's sort of see what we can tackle in a few minutes, just at, at a beginner level. So for anybody who's listening and thinking, okay, I don't really know what port is. I've heard the word, but not really quite sure what that is. Port is what we would call a fortified wine, meaning it's a wine that has been uh, bolstered up to have an, a higher level of alcohol content, and it is a sweet wine. So port wine comes from Portugal, and specifically the Douro region in the northeast part of Portugal. Port is usually red in color, but it can be white, it can even be rosé, and it actually comes in a range of styles. So we'll get back to this in a moment. Generally speaking, it is always a sweet wine. Why it's called a fortified wine and why it's sweet really comes down to how port wine is actually made. Port wine is made by adding uh, a grape-based spirit, which is usually brandy, but it can be any grape-based spirit, to fermenting grape juice. So to put that more simply, grapes are already fermenting and turning into alcohol, turning into wine. And then in that mix, this grape-based spirit is added. The addition of the alcohol in the form of the spirit will actually cause the fermentation to stop. And so essentially the wine stops cooking. And what you're left with is still a wine, but it's a higher alcohol wine. And it's also very sweet. So in in an episode, I'm going to get into the geekiness around how wine is made. But to put it really simply, bacteria eat away at the sugar in the grapes until the sugar more or less is gone. Again, there's, you know, in winemaking, there's a range of things winemakers can do and levers they can pull to affect the style of a wine. So sometimes wines can be sweet, sugars can be left uh, in the wine. But generally speaking, if you're making a drier style of wine, the uh, sugars are eaten up and in that process, alcohol is made. So in the case of a fortified wine like port, and there are many styles of fortified wine, port being only one of them, when you stop the fermentation process, you stop sort of that cooking process, you're left with some of the sugars in the wine. Um, and so that causes a high degree of sweetness in the wine. Port itself, there are up to 80 grape varieties. It's really fascinating. There are up to 80 grape varieties that can be used to produce port. So um, it can demonstrate, you know, a lot of different nuances and styles based not only on winemakers' preferences, but grapes and terroir soil, and also um, sort of a house style. But one thing to know is there are major varieties that are usually used in port wine. So for port wine with a red base, the wines that are primarily used are Turiga Nacional, Tinta Ruiz, which is another name for Tempranillo in Portugal, Tinta Chao, Tinta Barroca, and Turiga Franca. So those are five key grapes They are uh, grown extensively in the region, and they're primarily used to produce the red wines of port. Then there are 30 grapes that can be used in the production of white port. The prominent ones are a grape called Guevo, another grape called Malvasia Fina, and the last grape is called Circeal. So what I would say as a takeaway there is that port is a really interesting you know, indigenous to Portugal and the Douro region wine. It is made in a very specific way with potential wide umbrella of grapes, but some pretty specific ones 
that uh, will make up the base of a port wine or the whole substance of a port wine, depending on whether that wine is white or red. A little bit about the Douro region where port wine comes from. So the Douro region is often, you know, called or considered to be one of the first demarcated wine regions in the world because it was defined and established in 1756. Now, wine has been made for much longer than that around the world and in the Douro region as well. But when we talk about demarcated wine regions, so actual regions that are mapped out, you know, sort of fenced off and given a name and uh, status, the Douro region is one of the first and certainly considered to be, I think, amongst the first in Europe. It's not a very large region. It's only about 60 miles long. Uh, you know, which if you've seen Portugal or visited Portugal, that makes sense because the country itself is relatively small. What's interesting about the Douro region is it's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And that's because it is, you know, a very, very mountainous region. It hugs a river, so it runs along the Douro River with steep cliffs on either side. And it consists of three different subregions. They each have their own climatic conditions. So it's really interesting, you know, as you move from one of the regions to the other, the soils are somewhat homogeneous across the three regions or, or relatively close, but the climatic conditions are very different. So the way the grapes will express themselves and the styles of wines that can be produced are quite different. And it's the topography of the area, the, the way that those cliffs are so steep and, you know, hug the, the river, the beauty of that and the actual human fortitude, if you will, that goes into making grapes, growing grapes and making wine in a region like that. Uh, it requires quite a bit of stamina and hard work and ingenuity. And that's what's really given the area that, uh, that moniker of being a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's also actually beautifully stunning. If anybody is able to go and see it, I would definitely recommend it. Generally, it's considered to be very hospitable, inhospitable, sorry, for viticulture, just as I mentioned, for the reasons that I mentioned. Uh, it's that those steep cliffs and the, the winds that go through there can make it very difficult to grow grapes and then also take the grapes off the vines. Another thing I'd notice about the Douro region is that Douro is absolutely famous for port and it's probably one of the first things people think of when they think of Portugal in general and the Douro region more specifically. But there are also really wonderful unfortified, so regular dry wines that are made in this region as well that can represent incredible value. And I think I read that the split between fortified and unfortified wines is something like 60 to 40%. So 60% fortified and 40% unfortified, which I think, you know, certainly surprised me that it was almost 50-50, if not 50-50, let's call it 75-25 or 60-40. So something, you know, quite high in terms of the unfortified wines that are being made. And what I'd leave you with there is that, you know, those unfortified wines are really good and they're often not very expensive. So when you see Portuguese wines on the shelves, definitely give them a go. They're really good. One last thing I'd notice about the Douro region that's really interesting is that the amount of port that is, so the amount of fortified wines that can actually be made in a given year is set by a governing body. There's sort of an overall umbrella amount that's determined. And then the amount is allocated out to the various producers on the basis of, you know, what I'd consider to be a, a grid of factors, which is probably too complicated and, and, and kind of nerdy to get into here. Uh, but the, the point is here that the amount of port that's produced 
year to year varies greatly. That could be due to the yield that comes from the grapes and the harvest. So how much uh, grape and grape must and juice is actually available, but then also these limits that are set by the governing body. Um, and that can really influence the price for ports in certain years. It's an interesting point to know. Um, another thing that's really interesting around port is kind of its origin. So port derives its name from a Porto, which is the second largest city in Portugal. And the reason for that is that port has been shipped from a Porto for, you know, over 300 years. There was a Treaty of Windsor that was uh, struck in 1386 between England and Portugal, which really laid the groundwork for a reciprocal relationship between Portugal and England. And that's where uh, the English really started to want and to take the wines that were being made in Portugal. So that's why, you know, I say it laid the groundwork for the eventual uptake of and and really large-scale consumption of port wine in England. Um, There were also trade wars between France and Italy and England and other countries in the 15th century. Sorry, I should have said between France and England in the 15th century. And so Portuguese wine was exported even more regularly to England as a result, sometimes in exchange for salt cod. Uh, by the 1670s, people began to refer to this wine shipping from the seaside of Porto as port. Since the Douro's vineyards are far from Portugal's ports, the wines often suffered. They were being transported by sea, and that sea travel took its toll because there was so much heat and movement on those ships. And so some of the Portuguese winemakers got kind of clever and thought, okay, what about if we add a bit of brandy to the wines to extend their shelf life? And that's actually how port was discovered. So it's a really interesting story of an evolution of a historical reference to trade relations and then an evolution in, and I'd say almost an innovation in winemaking to meet the current conditions. And obviously here we are today and there are many, many people that are super passionate about port wine and collect it and drink it regularly. So in terms of styles of port, there are actually six major styles of port. I'll go through them quickly. The least expensive and most widely produced is something called ruby port. Ruby port is bright red in color. It's quite youthful. It's often actually not aged in oak. It's a beautiful wine and it can be, you know, fairly affordable. So it's a great entry point and it's drunk, um, I'd say, you know, more casually, but it does lack the complexity and quality that port is known for around the world. The next tier is tawny port. Tawny port is port that has been aged in oak and it ends up taking on this kind of golden brown shade because it's essentially allowed to oxidize. It's allowed to meet with air, which causes it to oxidize. Because of how it's treated, it can become richer and it tends to have more nuttier characteristics than a ruby port. So it's, you know, you're moving up in the scale of complexity. And one of the things you want to know about tawny ports is if you see an age on these wines. So for example, you may see 10 year, 20 year, 30 years. This does not actually reflect the time the wine itself has been aged. The, the number of years when you see that is actually an average of what's in the bottle. So some of the wine that has made up the mix of what's in the bottle will be really old and that'll lend some complexity to the blend and it can make it very interesting. But it's just good to know that it's not a, a stamp on how long the wine has been aged before it's been released. 
Then you get into vintage port and there's different styles uh, in between. So as I said, there's six major styles. I'm really only covering three, but vintage port comes from a very specific year. So one year only, and it's very highly prized and expensive. This is where we're getting into, you know, the more complex, the richer, the more expressive and the highly valued port wines. If you are a port aficionado, you're absolutely interested in vintage port. This is where people are, you know, putting their attention and focus and collecting essentially and holding on for the long term. As I mentioned, there are other styles. There are, you know, single farm, single vintage, late bottled vintage. There's lots of varieties on these three major styles, but it's good to know those three major styles just as you're starting to learn about port. So, I'm going to close out just by going through quickly who some of the major port producers are. There are many, but some of the famous port producers include Wars, Graham, Croft, Fonseca, Taylors, and Smith Woodhouse. I'll point out that you'll notice that a lot of these names appear to be Anglo-Saxon, and that is not a mistake on your part. There is a heavy investment uh, by the English in port production and in the port region. And as I mentioned, that historical relationship has lent itself well to that. So there uh, is, in fact, an Anglo-Saxon angle to the names that I just reamed off. Having said that, though, there are lots of quintas or uh, producers that are locally based that are also producing quality port. They're just perhaps not as well known. Um, so if you're interested, uh, drop me a note. I can certainly do another episode on that or, you know, do some research and you'll find some really great names that uh, you can, you know, explore with. So I hope that gives you a good sense of an overview of what port wine is about. You know, this is definitely more of a beginner level guide, but I did get into some specifics that probably transcend an entry level or beginner level of knowledge. My aim here was to give you enough to be able to understand a little bit about this beautiful style of wine. Maybe think about, you know, dabbling with it and trying it. It can make beautiful dessert uh, wine. It can also be really nice with cheese and nuts and charcuterie. And actually, to be honest, pork can actually be drunk as a main course or wine as well. So it's not just confined to dessert and it's beautiful. Uh, to try it on a special occasion or just try it when you when you want to do something different. And if you know you're around people who are talking about port, hopefully this will help you to feel a little less out of place. Or if there's somebody that you know who loves port, uh, maybe it helps you to get them a bottle. And with that, I will sign off. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and learning about port wine with me. I can't wait to catch up with you next time. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Wine It Up a Notch podcast. I hope you're enjoying the podcast thus far. Be sure to hit subscribe to be notified of future episodes or leave a review to let me know what you think. Take care.